March 16th, 1988, a gated home in Bradbury, California. Investigators descend upon a grim scene in the prosperous community, as blood and bullet casings litter the paved ground where two bodies lay in the early morning haze. The woman lay near the end of the driveway to her home. At the top of the driveway near the garage lay the male victim, enveloped by a pool of blood which had flowed down the driveway, its tendrils reaching out towards the female victim, like a lonely hand in the dark. The investigators on the scene were of the mind that two separate weapons were used to commit the crime, although later forensics would suggest the theory that only one weapon was used in both murders. It appeared that around eight shots had been fired, with potentially two separate 9mm semi-automatic handguns shooting four shots apiece. The female had been shot in the head and abdomen, while the male suffered bullet wounds to his head, abdomen, hand, and hip. Though the female victim wore over $70,000 in jewelry, none had been taken, nor was a single dollar of the 4000 in cash that the couple was carrying between them at the time. If nothing else, one thing seemed clear. This was not a robbery. It was something far more personal. But who would want to kill the Speed King? Who would want to kill his wife? As Mickey and Trudy Thompson lay dead in their Bradbury driveway, police could do little but ask neighbors in the surrounding area if they'd seen or heard anything in those early morning hours in a desperate attempt to make heads or tails of why an automotive legend had been so brutally executed alongside the woman he loved. It says a lot that just the Thompson name alone carries with it the weight of world championships, land speed records, and Hall of Fame inductions. This is a man who created his own off-road sanctioning bodies in the form of Score International and the now-defunct Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group, which also ran indoor motocross events to major arenas and stadiums across the United States. Thompson wasn't just notable on the track, but in the business world as well creating a successful line of performance tires and wheels that survives today on Thompson's goal of crafting parts that were, quote, born on the track and have never left, end quote. Thompson wasn't looking to make tires for your daily drivers on residential roads. These were products intended for competition. More than that, they were intended for winning. And through Mickey's mission statement, the company has achieved several first-to-market innovations, such as the world's largest one-piece drag wheel, the first-ever radial drag slick for bracket racers, and the 406.7 mile per hour record at Speed Week, just to name a few. And that's all in the past 13 years. So to say Mickey Thompson left a legacy beyond his own racing accomplishments is almost underselling things. But life can be as unfair as it is beautiful. And part of that unfairness comes from how frequently a life is distilled down to the essence of its ending. For all the records he broke, for all the races he won, for all the people he inspired, it's hard to think about Mickey Thompson without thinking about the manner in which his life ended. It doesn't nullify any of his accomplishments, but it does cast a large shadow over his memory. It can be hard for family, friends, and fans to reminisce without reflecting with sadness on how two people were stolen from this world, 
long before their time. Because, sadly, not all legends have happy endings. This is the man, the myth, the Mickey Thompson. Mickey Thompson was born Marion Lee Thompson on December 7, 1928, in Alhambra, California. His father was a retired Irish police captain, and he knew his son was a gearhead in the making when young Marion passed up baseball, toy guns, and other things boys his age preferred in favor of messing with his car tools. Marion, whom they nicknamed Mickey, didn't feel like waiting till he was old enough to drive to get wheels underneath him. So, as an adolescent, he built his own soapbox racer that utilized an old washing machine engine, somehow managing to get the crude little racer working. As Mickey became fascinated with tinkering, his obsession with what that tinkering could do increased exponentially, to the extent that Mickey became all but obsessed with speed as he got older. For instance, in his early teens, Mickey put a quick-change rear end in a Model A in order to hit 89 miles per hour which suddenly made him fairly well-known in his hometown, since other boys his age didn't just grab the bull by the horns the way this kid did. By age 14, Mickey became a car owner in his own right, purchasing a beat-up 1927 Chevy for the princely sum of $7.50, which comes out to around $125.50 in 2018 money. And he wrenched on that, too as it became evident that Mickey was a kid with a real passion for learning how cars worked and contriving ways to make them go faster. If cars were a hobby before, they would become Mickey's entire life now that he had his own wheels. Before he was even old enough to legally drive, Mickey had not only started working on his own cars, but started modifying others as well, taking to the secluded dry lakes near his hometown to test out his driving skills. To say Mickey was a natural at this would undermine the amount of work he had to put in to becoming as skilled a driver as he would later become, but it's hard to ignore the reality that motorsport was in Mickey's blood. Before the age of 21, he became the first person to go from a standing start and accelerate past 120 miles per hour on a quarter-mile drag strip. He would later improve on this record by accelerating past 150 miles per hour. Mickey realized his talent was potentially of professional caliber, and so he sought to launch a career in racing. At age 21, Mickey came into possession of a 1936 Ford Coupe that would later become his latest tinkering obsession, modifying factory components with aftermarket parts to create a beefed-up monster capable of launching his racing career. At Bonneville, that revved-up coupe earned him the top speed trophy in his class, a feat he would duplicate four more times. Just like that, Mickey Thompson went from a boy tinkering with cars to a man blazing trails. In between restoring old Fords and Chevys to make ends meet, as well as working as a pressman for the Los Angeles Times, Mickey built his name as a drag racer, pursuing a career that would see him set more automotive land speed and endurance records than any man who ever lived. Among many accomplishments to his name over the course of the 1950s, Mickey is credited with designing and building the first-ever slingshot dragster, even going as far as to improve on his own design in 1954, when he increased traction by moving the driver's seat behind the rear axle 
This allowed him enough traction to really go ham with his custom engines, and other drag racers followed suit. Mickey had essentially raised the standard of competition around him. However, in addition to his engineering acumen, Mickey wanted to further hone his abilities as a competitive driver, in particular by entering Mexico's La Carrera Panamericana. The event, which had been intended by the Mexican government to promote the nation's highway system, had been marred by any number of tragedies in its brief history. It was sort of a North American answer to the Isle of Man TT. Cars crashed and overturned, they left wreckage in their wake, people died, careers were ended, and lives tragically altered beyond repair. Typically, only a third of entrants actually finished the race in a given year. Among the reasons are the fact that the tracks were difficult to completely secure. If an accident occurred, it generally meant that it took longer for these crashes to be noticed, and for rescue operations to be deployed. With 27 deaths over a five-year period, La Carrera Panamericana had one of the highest mortality rates in motorsports history. A lot of people basically viewed the race as being cursed, and why the hell not? The constant parade of death and disfigurement seemed to bear that out. Yet, for all he'd accomplished in his short life already, Mickey still felt he needed to test his mettle against more high-pressure driving scenarios, with high hopes that he would finally cement his reputation at an international level. Unfortunately, his participation in the event would prove to have tragic consequences that would potentially haunt Mickey for the rest of his life. The fourth annual La Carrera Panamericana was in 1953, and Mickey entered a 1952 Ford with a six-banger for a race that spanned four days and eight separate segments spanning the full length of Mexico. And yet, despite the race's popularity, Mexico seemed ill-equipped to accommodate it, as thousands were in attendance for the stretch of race spanning from Tuzla Gutierrez to Oaxaca. In addition to spectators, mechanics, journalists, and the racers themselves, race officials were in generous supply, since each car had to be rigorously inspected to prevent cheating. Signs were even printed in multiple languages stating, Don't attempt the smallest deviation from stock. It is unsportsmanlike. And anyway, we'll trap you at the finish. Only 60 cars would finish the race out of the 177 that had entered. Over the course of the grueling contest that year, drivers would suffer mechanical failures, crashes, injuries, and, sadly, even death. But perhaps sadder still, the fatalities were not solely limited to the drivers themselves. At the very least, the drivers knew what they were getting themselves into, and prepared themselves accordingly. But the same could not be said for the spectators in attendance, even given the race's notorious, cursed reputation. Tragedy never seemed farther away than the next turn. The race started at 6 a.m. on November 23, 1953, led by a Chrysler New Yorker special driven by Mexican racer Fernando Raso Maciel. However, three-time Carrera Panamericana winner Felice Bonetto quickly took a commanding lead in that 330-mile first leg, recording a time of 3 hours, 28 minutes, and 14 seconds, overtaking rival Piero Taruffi, who was himself a former Carrera Panamericana champion. 
The two had a storied rivalry over their years in the sport, yet their competitiveness did not come at the expense of looking out for one another, as both men painted warning signs to themselves, instructing them of hazards ahead. As former Carrera Panamericana winners, they each knew the track better than most, and knew what to look out for on the daunting course. With that said, the adrenaline rush of pure speed turns the competitive nature of a regular sport into a combustible element, to where even people who should know what to expect lose focus on everything else but victory. With Tarufi hot on his heels, Bonetto felt pressured to muscle his way through the next stretch before his rival could catch him. On an average track, this wouldn't have been an issue there would be fewer hazards of which to be mindful. Which isn't to say there's no danger on the average track. Motorsports are dangerous no matter where you're competing, whether on a track, residential roads, or some other foreign terrain. But in La Carrera Panamericana, it can be easy to miss things, even for the most experienced drivers. In his haste to keep ahead of Tarufi, Bonetto missed one of his own signs warning of a dip in the pavement ahead. Upon entering the town of Silao, Bonetto came to the terrifying realization that he wouldn't be able to slow down fast enough to avoid the hazard. He lost control as his car slammed into the side of a building, killing him on impact. A championship career, years of experience, and the hope of many more years to come, gone in an instant. The 1953 La Carrera Penimericana had claimed its first life. But it sadly wouldn't be the last, as a similarly catastrophic fate would befall co-drivers Antonio Stagnoli and Giuseppe Scotuzzi, as a tire blew out on their Ferrari 375mm, causing the car to hit a bank, flip over multiple times, and burst into flames. Scotuzzi was thrown from the car and died within moments, while Stagnoli was rushed to the hospital, where he was later pronounced dead. While Mickey maintained a steady pace, the death toll of La Carrera Panamericana was rising around him. At this point, the race was hardly a quarter of the way through, but the worst was yet to come. According to author Johnny Tipler, in his book La Carrera Panamericana, The World's Greatest Road Race, the accident occurred over the Tehuantepec River during the stretch between Tuzla Gutierrez and Oaxaca. In short, after an hour-long passage of full-throttle straights, racers were met with a sudden curve in the road. American racer Bob Christie and mechanic Kenneth Wood failed to meet the turn and flipped over, plummeting onto the bank of the river. Christie quickly moved to help Wood from the vehicle and reach the bank, but as officials and spectators alike gathered around the wreckage, Mickey came barreling down the road at speeds approaching 150 miles per hour. Mickey anticipated the turn. What he didn't anticipate was the people. There wasn't supposed to be anyone there. In the moment of his approach, a little girl ran into the street, prompting Mickey to swerve, slam his brakes, and shoot for the bank to avoid hitting her. His car flipped and rolled just like Christie's had. However, unlike Christie's car... Mickey's Ford plowed into the group of spectators who'd gathered around the previous wreck. Three local residents, as well as a town official, a policeman, and a soldier, were killed. Mickey suffered broken ribs as he was escorted away from the scene by a Ford Motor Company official. Though spectators had lost their lives, 
It's been argued that the death toll would have been far greater had Mickey not been so quick-thinking as to aim for the bank. However, the truth remained that this first leg of the race was responsible for eight of the nine deaths suffered at La Carrera Panamericana that year. It was a wall-to-wall disaster, particularly now that innocent spectators were among the casualties. The mounting number of deaths in La Carrera Panamericana, coupled with the infamous Le Mans disaster in 1955 that saw 80 spectators lose their lives, led to Mexican President Adolfo Ruiz Cortines declaring an end to the race, claiming that the race had already served its original purpose of highlighting Mexico's highway system, for better or worse. Of course, there were other factors at play as well. It was costing the government too much money to keep the roads in racing condition, to say nothing of how the race caused commercial traffic to be suspended in areas along the circuit route. There was also the cost of employing officials, medics, policemen, and organizers to man a circuit that spanned the length of the entire country. This is without even getting into coming up with the prize money or having to do damage control in the media over the excessive amount of death encountered with each annual race. By 1955, it made no sense to bother with holding another La Carrera Panamericana, although one was scheduled for December of that year prior to its abrupt cancellation. And although the race would be revived in 1988, the event already carried with it the stigma of the unfathomable. Granted, President Cortines didn't do the race's reputation any favors when he essentially blamed the drivers and their mechanics, stating that the tragic nature of the event was in part due to the lack of safety features on the cars, as well as the take-no-prisoners attitude of the racers themselves. Either way, the curtain closed on Mickey's plans for international stardom, as his attempt at winning the final La Carrera Panamericana the following year failed when his OHV V8 Ford suffered a broken tie rod end and crashed into a stone wall, taking him out of the race. Trial and error is a natural part of perfecting a race car, but Mickey had rarely met obstacles this daunting as a driver. And so, Mickey decided to return to his engineering roots, with hopes of redemption running high. Remember that slingshot dragster Mickey created? A first-in-its-class innovation? That car, named the Panorama City Special, made its official debut in 1955 at the NHRA's first-ever U.S. Nationals at the Municipal Airport in Great Bend, Kansas. In addition to a full-body, skirted rear wheels, and a cockpit windshield that completely enveloped the driver, the Panorama City Special featured steel front wheels with moon discs and a 97-inch wheelbase. Although drag racing had only been around for a brief period, Mickey Thompson had proven himself a master of the form, delivering a record quarter mile of 151.26 miles per hour, a record which stood for 16 years. He followed this up by designing and building a twin-engine dragster with the help of fellow engineer Fritz Voigt. In its official run, the twin-engine dragster reached an incredible 294.117 miles per hour at its absolute top speed, ultimately hitting a number that would embolden Mickey to try for the land speed record. The twin-engined collaboration with Voigt was in 1958, but it would be another two years before Mickey would build a car fast enough to achieve his goal. 
and he would have to take a leave of absence from the L.A. Times, forsake any kind of social life, and sink every last penny of his savings into this car if he was going to truly realize his vision. So that's exactly what he did. Building a powder blue streamliner capable of delivering 2,000 horsepower off the back of four Pontiac 414 cubic inch V8 engines, and specially designed custom Goodyear tires capable of withstanding speeds of over 400 miles per hour. It was 1959, and Mickey had his sights set on the world land speed record, so he took the Challenger 1, which to that point had been the eighth hot rod he'd built since the 10th grade, and traveled to the Bonneville Salt Flats that October to take a crack at history. Although he failed to surpass the world record of 394.2 miles per hour, Mickey managed to set a number of other world records, such as 359.1 miles per hour for the Flying 5 kilometer, 342.5 miles per hour for the Flying 5 mile, 325.6 miles per hour for the Flying 10 kilometer, and 282.7 miles per hour for the Flying 10 mile. Over the course of his runs at Bonneville over the years, Mickey would amass some 295 records in any number of different categories. But up to that point, none of those numbers was the 400 mile per hour goal he was desperate to hit. So Mickey went back to the drawing board, deciding to go full-on mad scientist by placing superchargers on top of all four Pontiac engines. The Challenger wasn't just a hot rod anymore. It bordered on science fiction measuring over 20 feet long, but just 39 inches tall. It was a peculiar-looking vehicle, but it had the sheer power to potentially shatter the goals Mickey had set for himself, as he had a very real chance at not just hitting 400 miles per hour, but exceeding that number altogether. And sure enough, Mickey's masterpiece delivered on its promise, surpassing the achievements of the Panorama City Special and the twin-engined Voigt Dragster, by setting a new land speed record with a one-way run of 406.6 miles per hour at the Bonneville Salt Flats. Mickey was no longer just the fastest American on four wheels. He was one of the fastest men in the world. Naturally, Mickey was riding a high in 1960, so he decided to test his mettle in new waters. Literally. He decided to take a break altogether from racing on land, and instead tried to replicate his success at the Colorado River's Lake Mead, piloting a hydroplane in an attempt at setting a new speed record. Unfortunately, racing boats is arguably a more delicate science than racing cars, given the tumultuous nature of the water itself. Now, this isn't to say that the landed track isn't its own living, breathing entity in a given road race but typically you're not fighting constantly changing terrain at the Indy 500. Then again, if there are crashes and wreckage on the track, then I guess you are fighting changing road conditions, but I digress. Mickey found out the hard way just how difficult racing on water can be when he was thrown from his boat after miscalculating his path and veering off course. Now you would think just being thrown from your boat wouldn't really be an issue because you're just falling into water, except the velocity with which Mickey was flung from his hydroplane meant he hit water that had the consistency of hard land. The accident left Mickey with a broken back and an uncertain future in racing, as doctors honestly didn't know if he'd ever be able to even walk again properly, much less operate a motor vehicle at a competitive level. 
But Mickey was determined to see that this wasn't the end. It was nearly two years before he was walking again as he used to. But Mickey got there. And by 1962, Mickey returned to the track. A changed man. In 1962, Mickey turned his attention from land speed records to racing championships, entering the Indy 500. For this task, he would seek help in the form of John Crosthwaite, the legendary British racer and designer whose notable collaborators included Colin Chapman of Team Lotus, and drivers such as Dan Gurney, Graham Hill, and Jackie Stewart. A specialist at chassis design in his own right, Crosthwaite was the perfect partner for an innovation-oriented man like Mickey. You see, by this point, Mickey was being sponsored by Jim Kimberly of the Kimberly-Clark Corporation, along with Harvey Aluminum. So now he had a little bit of sponsorship money to play with. So he needed someone who was as passionate about design as he was. So Mickey approached John Crosthwaite about teaming up for the 1962 Indy 500. Together, they entered a car with 16-inch wheels and a fully independent suspension. In addition, the team bypassed the often Hauser-powered front-engined race tuning that had come to identify the Indy 500 in favor of a stock V8 Buick engine. It was notable for the event because no stock engine had been raced in the Indy 500 since 1946. But the duo also set another milestone as their partnership was credited with kicking off the rear-engine revolution in the Indy 500. Led by Mickey's crew, which was captained by motorsports mechanic, future legend, and former Mickey Thompson collaborator Fritz Voigt. The team stretched the regulations for stock block engines by increasing the V8 to 4.2 liters while also detuning the engine due to fear over its viability over long distances. Mickey Thompson lived and breathed the car as much as he did the Challenger, and Crosthwaite shared his commitment, as evidenced by how rarely he slept in his own bed, instead living out of a nearby motel. Working in excess of 14 hours each day, the team managed to complete the build inside of four short months. It was one of the marvels of the 1962 Indy 500, at least from a design standpoint. Yet, it didn't fare as well in the race as the team had hoped, as driver Dan Gurney had to retire from the race on the 94th lap, after a leaking oil seal caused the gearbox to seize up. Gurney had been in ninth place at the time of the leak, but the malfunction ultimately caused him to finish 20th out of 33. Then again, there was a silver lining in all of this, as the team collectively earned the award for mechanical achievement for original design, construction, and accomplishment so the Endeavor wasn't exactly a complete bust. Of course, Mickey didn't want to give up on his crossweight car just yet. For 1963, he planned on improving the car by swapping in a small-block V8 from Chevy, testing out the new engine swap at Bonneville, where he set another 35 world speed records, because much like Brandon Sanderson taking a break from writing books by writing other books... Mickey Thompson spent time between race seasons drag racing and setting speed records, which is how he earned himself the nickname the Speed King. Naturally, it wasn't just that he could go fast himself, but also that Mickey was capable of helping other people to go faster as well. It was a reputation that he promoted as a brand unto itself. So Mickey gave the Indy 500 another shot, bringing back the two mid-engine Crothsweight cars, now with the small-block Chevy V8s, along with three brand-new roller skate cars for 1963. 
By this point, Harvey Aluminum was now operating under the name Harcraft, but they agreed to sponsor Mickey for the second consecutive year, resulting in the aforementioned roller skate car known as the Harvey Aluminum Special. This car not only made use of a lightweight titanium chassis, but also utilized wider racing tires than the competitive standard, 7 inches in front and 9 inches in the rear. Which sounds like a great name for a porno, but I digress. By this point, Dan Gurney had defected to Ford, but Mickey wasn't at a loss for good drivers to take over. Funnily enough, despite a 31st place qualifying finish, driver Al Miller operated one of the Crossthwaite cars and managed a 9th place finish, which was the exact same position Dan Gurney had been in the year previous, when the same car had failed him. The Harvey Aluminum Special, meanwhile, fared differently, although I don't know if you could say it fared better. Driver Dwayne Carter had driven one of the cars to 15th in the qualifying round, only to suffer an engine failure in the race proper, ending his run in 23rd. And it speaks to a larger issue with the roller skate car, as those revolutionary smaller tires were actually part of the problem. The chassis, which had been designed around the tires, ultimately couldn't be supported by such small wheels. It needed at least 15 inches to handle properly which coincidentally also sounds like a statement applicable to the adult film industry, but yeah, yeah, okay, moving on. As Mickey himself would note, the high center of gravity resulted in increased body roll, which made the car more of a nuisance to drive than anything else. Even Formula One champion Graham Hill took the car out for a test spin, but flat out refused to race it due to how poorly the thing handled. Although he would redesign the car with a Ford engine, the Harvey Aluminum Special Dragster just wasn't the car Mickey would need to topple the Indy 500. Naturally, after the failure of the Harvey Special, you'd think Mickey would recognize that smaller tires weren't the answer. But he actually planned to use 12-inch tires on his three entries to the 1964 Indy 500 right up until he discovered that the regulations now required 15-inch wheels. So not only did he have to make the appropriate wheel adjustments, but he now had to alter the chassis to accommodate the much larger Ford engines that he needed. And there was still the issue with how these cars handled, as attempts to improve aerodynamic lift came at the cost of handling response. So he turned to Allstate, who sponsored his team for 1964, delivering regulation-compliant Allstate tires that were enclosed as part of a streamlined redesign for the dragster. While the car was generally faster, the team had failed to find a balance between aerodynamic efficiency and proper handling. This was evidenced by the problems encountered by Mastin Gregory, who quit the Allstate-sponsored team after suffering a crash during the qualifying race. Sure, crashes are to be expected in motorsports, but to Gregory, his frustration stemmed from just how many unaddressed faults this car had. With that said, out of the three cars entered, two managed to qualify without encountering any of the mechanical or handling issues that had prompted Gregory to quit the team. Of the two cars to qualify, one of them was driven by 45-year-old Eddie Johnson, a seasoned veteran of the Indy 500. The other was driven by Dave McDonald, a 27-year-old motorsports hotshot with 52 victories and 75 top three finishes under his belt across 118 races. Neither man seemed to have an issue with operating the redesigned dragster, now known as the Sears All-State Special, after the team's sponsors for the event. 
Despite initial doubts over the reliability of the Sears All-State Special, it seemed like everything was a go for Mickey and his team. The Indy 500 was theirs for the taking. The only thing they actually needed to do was win the race. Except, for the second time in the span of a decade, Mickey was due to experience a motorsports tragedy beyond anyone's ability to fathom. During the first lap, everything was going fine. McDonald was roaring past his competition, overtaking at least five cars as he darted around the track. McDonald blew right past Johnny Rutherford, a racing sensation who'd won in his first ever start, claiming victory at the Daytona International Speedway, becoming, at just 26 years of age, one of the youngest drivers to ever win a NASCAR race at the time. Another competitor McDonald managed to pass in his whirlwind start was USAC Championship Trail Champion Eddie Sachs, an Allentown PA native nicknamed the Clown Prince of Auto Racing, responsible for coining the phrase, If you can't win, be spectacular. Yet, despite his boastful persona, Sachs valued safety over showmanship, sacrificing a potential Indy 500 win in 1961 by opting to pit while in the lead with just three laps to go, due to the realization that his right front tire was beginning to split. Now, he might have made it those final three laps and secured the win, but he wasn't about to risk his life to find out, stating afterwards that, quote, I'd sooner finish second than be dead, end quote. The intensity of the race was evident from the start, as McDonald focused on maintaining his high placement, even as his car began showing him signs of poor handling. Other drivers on the road noticed the difficulties McDonald was having. He was all over the road, constantly nipping at the edges of the track. It was clear that McDonald was either in serious trouble or taking an unorthodox approach to maintaining his position. Either way, by the second lap, McDonald had lost ground and was desperate to make up the difference. He found himself shoulder to shoulder with a venerable assortment of world-class opponents. Ronnie Dumont was a two-time back-to-back champion of the Little 500 race at Anderson Speedway, and his car managed to keep ahead of Bobby Unser from the legendary Unser Racing Dynasty. Also trailing was Chuck Stevenson, the only two-time winner of La Carrera Panamericana. Also in the lineup was Bob Veith, a USAC Championship Car Series pro who was also on his 8th Indy 500, along with Norm Hall, who himself was an 8-time top 10 finisher at Indianapolis. Now, this grouping was tightening into a cluster as the racers reached the fourth turn. McDonald seemed to have things handled, with Dumon and Rutherford now close behind. But as the turn neared... The worst happened. McDonald lost control of his car, slamming into the inside wall and igniting the gas tank. The fire and the crash debris caused a chain reaction. Eddie Sachs, who saw what was coming, took the approach that Mickey himself had taken ten years prior by focusing on a point that would minimize damage and loss of life and aiming for that point. In this case, that point was a small opening along the outside wall. It would be a slim chance, but the clown prince of auto racing looked to pull off a spectacular save. And he might have managed to do it, too. He was certainly skilled enough, after all. 
Just ahead of him was Bob Veith, who'd overtaken Sachs and managed to narrowly inch his way through the small opening in the wall, and Sachs was poised to follow close behind. But just as Sachs was about to make the difficult shot, his path was suddenly blocked. McDonald's car was on fire, but it was still in motion, and its path suddenly placed it in front of Eddie Sachs. There was no chance to prevent a collision. When Sachs hit McDonald's car, it caused a second explosion. That explosion killed Eddie Sachs. It was a horrific scene, and all the more so for the fact that more drivers were just around the corner. Johnny Rutherford tried to avoid the catastrophe, but found there was no way to dodge it. So he tried muscling his way through the flames. However, his Watson Roadster couldn't manage it and Rutherford landed underneath Sachs, but over McDonald, in a nightmarish pile. Bobby Unser's Novi had lost its steering, and was now spinning aimlessly along the track, eventually rear-ending Ronnie Dumon. Dumon spun into the flames along the infield wall, suffering severe burn damage. By this point, Chuck Stevenson and Norm Hall had no choice but to brace for impact, as the crashes increased in number one after the other, injuries mounting upon injuries, mounting upon death. Yet Sachs wasn't the only person to lose his life that day. Dave McDonald suffered burns to over 75% of his body. But even if he'd avoided the burns, his lungs had inhaled the smoke and the flames, which was theorized to have caused acute pulmonary edema. Horrifically, McDonald had been awake throughout this torturous ordeal and was alert when he was removed from his car. But despite being rushed to nearby Methodist Hospital, McDonald was pronounced dead at 1.20 p.m. His teammate, Eddie Johnson, retired after just six laps. Not that winning even mattered now. This entire catastrophe had been broadcast live the world over. For the first time in its history, the Indy 500 was stopped due to a crash. The aftermath prompted a number of important questions. Namely, how could something like this happen? Prior to the race, on carburation day, McDonald had been advised by Jim Clark not to drive the car. Though McDonald was a polished and experienced driver in his own right, Clark was a pole winner in 1963, in addition to his reputation as a Formula One world champion. His advice followed that of fellow Formula One champion Graham Hill the year prior. This was a car that, from a design standpoint, had no choice but to handle poorly. The enclosed wheels intended to contribute to the sleeker, more aerodynamic design? They impeded maneuverability and overall handling, to say nothing of how the layout of the car rendered it clumsy. For one, all 45 gallons of fuel had been encased in a single bladder on the left side of the car, which itself had a molded fiberglass body housing and a magnesium plate beneath the tank. To many in the know at the time, there was no reason this car should have been on the road in the first place, even if it did technically pass inspection. So the United States Auto Club made changes to its rules, Cars were now required to make two pit stops, which was intended to curb any advantage that gasoline-powered cars might have had in the overall mileage department. And that wasn't all, as cars now had to carry less fuel in their tanks, 
while regulations were altered to all but eliminate gasoline from the Indy 500 altogether. But some of the improvements weren't so much USAC mandated as compelled by some of the companies involved in the sport. Firestone followed in the footsteps of military tech to create the race-safe fuel cell, a line of rubber fuel bladders that prevented gas from leaking into the cockpit. Meanwhile, Goodyear partnered up with Firestone to craft a series of liners for racing tires to prevent them from going completely flat after suffering a puncture. But these improvements did little to comfort the loved ones of Dave McDonald, or Eddie Sachs, who left behind a wife, Nance, and a young son, Edward III who would go on to become a race car driver in his own right, albeit one who never competed at the Indy 500. Safety had been given a higher priority now, but Sachs had been killed in a race that should never have known that level of suffering, which isn't to say that any race should acquaint itself with that level of tragedy. Yet the Indy 500 had met with its first true catastrophe, a nightmare that many hoped would never be repeated. As for the late Dave McDonald, Mickey Thompson joined such luminaries as Carol Shelby and IndyCar legend Bill Strop in serving as pallbearer at his funeral. Shelby himself would later refer to McDonald as a racer with possibly the most raw talent of any driver he'd ever seen. Sadly, like Sachs, McDonald too left behind a family. A widow, Sherry. A son, Rich. And a daughter, Vicky. In 2016, the McDonald's met with the Sachs family at the 100th Indy 500 to have a memorial reunion on the exact section of track where both Eddie and Dave crashed. It was a grim reminder of what had been lost, but also a beautiful symbol of the perseverance of the human spirit in the wake of unimaginable loss. As for the survivors of that horrific crash, Bob Veith would end his career in 1968 with 37 top 10 finishes, while Norm Hall would go on to achieve a career-best 5th place finish in 1965 at Trenton. Chuck Stevenson would close out his career in the AAA and USAC Championship Car Series with 37 top 10 finishes and 4 victories. Meanwhile, Bobby Unser found himself embroiled in controversy just 17 years later, when he won the pole at the 1981 Indy 500, only to be stripped of his win after passing eight cars during a caution period. The win was awarded to runner-up Mario Andretti, who had passed two cars during the same caution period. This resulted in a lawsuit spanning half the year, as Unser's win was reinstated in October 1981, although he was still issued a fine of $40,000, which totals out to around $114,263 in 2018. But Unser was bitter about his treatment by the USAC, and ultimately retired from racing altogether. Lastly, there was Ronnie Dumont. Following the crash, Ronnie continued to race, ultimately scoring an impressive 6th place finish at the Indy 500 in 1968. He'd built momentum heading into his next USAC championship race at the Rex Mays Classic in Milwaukee. Dumont started off the race well enough, managing to land in 14th position out of 24 cars. But the third lap took a turn for the worse, as racers Bay Darnell and Norm Brown collided in the first turn and swept Dumont into the fray. The resulting crash and fire claimed Dumont's life. 
With regards to Mickey Thompson's Indy 500 career, he persisted from 1965 through 1968, but never managed to come close to the showings his team managed in those first three years. Despite using a front-engined roadster in 1965 and a rear-engine all-wheel drive model in 1967, none of the cars Mickey entered ever qualified for the Indy 500 again. But Mickey's career extended far beyond the Indy 500, as he would claim victory at the 1969 NHRA Spring Nationals and the NHRA Nationals alongside driver Danny Ongeis. His career also flourished off the track as the launch of Mickey Thompson performance tires in 1963 had succeeded beyond Mickey's expectations, making him a fairly wealthy man, at least enough to become a promoter in his own right. Score International and Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group were two ventures that allowed him to seize on the public's sudden fascination with racing of all types. In 1973, Score International was founded as a sanctioning body for off-road competition, while MTEG sanctioned indoor events such as motocross and off-road racing. Suddenly, Mickey was promoting races that sold out arenas and stadiums across the country, providing other racers the opportunity to build the same name that he had, while hopefully avoiding some of the same tragedies that he himself had encountered. Because despite all the success he would later have, it's hard to imagine that Mickey didn't still think about the horrors of La Carrera Panamericana or the Indy 500. After all, even a racing legend is ultimately still a person first. Of course, for all his exploits on the track, Mickey was still a fairly simple guy. Not just a racing enthusiast and entrepreneur, but also a husband and a father. On October 28, 1948, Mickey became a father when his wife, Judy, gave birth to their son, Danny Thompson. Judy Creech, who was Thompson's first wife, was there for the entirety of his early career, the dizzying highs of land speed records and the heartbreaking lows of tragic loss on the racetrack. In a 2009 interview with Samuel Hawley, author of the book Speed Duel, the inside story of the land speed record in the 60s, Creech recounted some of the pros and cons of living with such a career-oriented man as Mickey Thompson. You see, if he wasn't working on his cars, he was, well, working on his cars. Okay, yeah, nobody said Mickey was a particularly complicated guy when it came to his passions. As Judy recalled, Sometimes he slept, but he didn't really sleep. And with good reason, as there were any number of safety concerns Mickey had to take into consideration. We didn't have fire suits or anything then, so he wore leather motorcycle pants and jacket and everything, and they were loose at the bottom and the end, so I had to take them all up. About the only thing I ever heard him say he was afraid of, and that was fire, because he was so contained inside the cockpit of that Challenger that if it caught on fire, he couldn't get out, because Fritz used to have to bang him on the head to get him in. Naturally, some aspects of being married to Mickey were easier than others. While their son Danny was their pride and joy, Mickey proved to be stern about the manner in which their son was raised. And again, with good reason. Judy confirmed to Holly that Mickey never wanted this life for their son, that he never wanted Danny to follow his father's footsteps into motorsports. 
He was always that way with Danny. When we ran the drag strip, Danny had a quarter midget, and he raced over there. And one day there was an accident. I could see that because I worked in the tower, but I saw Mickey running through the pits and down there. Somebody had told him that somebody got hurt with the quarter midget, had broken their back, and he thought it was Danny. As she recalled, And he ran down there and he took Danny's car away from him and wouldn't let him race again. And it wasn't Danny who had crashed. Danny always did what his dad said. But then he came to the point where he wanted to race. And Mickey said, I don't want you to race. I don't want you to race. I I won't won't support support you or anything. anything. And Danny said, that's okay, I'm I'm going to race anyway. And race he did. Whether Mickey liked it or not, Danny would eventually follow the trail his father had blazed, becoming a capable race car driver in his own right. After winning the quarter midget championship at the age of nine, he built his reputation throughout his adolescence and into young adulthood, as he raced Formula Atlantic cars, stadium trucks, and sprint cars throughout his teen years. At a certain point, Mickey could no longer deny his son's passion, even if he didn't necessarily agree with the boy pursuing it. By this point, Mickey had sort of accepted that his prime had passed him, and so he got into promoting himself as a brand, first with Mickey Thompson Performance Tires in 1963, and later with Score International and the Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group, both promotional ventures. In short, Mickey looked toward becoming a big-shot promoter in the 1970s, with the idea that he would be selling out venues left and right with his unique brand of automotive sports entertainment. But this put a strain on Mickey's marriage with Judy Creech, and the couple eventually divorced. As the years went on, Mickey would participate in an off-road race here and there, to the consternation of his new wife, Gertrude Trudy Feller, the publisher's secretary for Hot Rod magazine. The couple married in 1971, and Trudy, like Judy before her, knew a thing or two about the terror of losing Mickey to the thrill of racing. In one infamous incident, Mickey all but vanished for two whole days during the notorious desert race known as the Parker 400. Based in Arizona, the race presented its own perils, with Mickey becoming caught in a dust storm that then segued into a night of bitterly cold temperatures. To survive... Mickey had to ride out the storm in an old trash can until he could manage the 50-mile trek back to safety, risking exposure the entire time. It was miraculous that he survived, much less got back into the races. In one notable instance, Mickey flooded his engine during the Baja 1000 in 1982 and figured the best solution would be to use gasoline to set the engine on fire, surmising that he'd either get the ignition working again or die in the ensuing explosion. But incredibly enough, Mickey would actually go on to win the race, the absolute madman. So yeah, needless to say, Mickey still competed here and there, post-retirement, so I suppose it was never truly an official retirement because you'd never know when the itch would strike and Mickey would find himself back on the track. That said, Mickey was gradually shifting his focus to business ventures, creating and selling 25 different businesses over the next decade and a half, while also promoting off-road championship Grand Prix events. 
Mickey planned on being a motorsports mogul, as famous for bringing motorsports to mainstream popularity as he was for setting speed records. Except, the reality would be far different from what Mickey hoped, as he would struggle when compared against a young upstart in the world of motocross, a promoter as enigmatic as he was successful. Mike Goodwin was born in 1956 and was a self-admitted Navy brat moonlighting as an Eagle Scout for most of his childhood in Pensacola, Florida. While he wasn't an automotive enthusiast to the extent that Mickey Thompson was throughout his adolescence, he did share Mickey's zeal for adrenaline. Much like Mickey, Mike damn near got himself killed in an aquatic accident. An aquaccident, if you will. Although I doubt that's going to catch on, but... Hashtag a quaxident, just in case. Long story short, Mike ruptured a lung while on holiday in Catalina. He had been scuba diving at the time, engaged in one of his all-time favorite activities, spearfishing. In fact, Goodwin was a world record holder for spearfishing without an air tank, hauling in a 114-pound stingray in one encounter and a 127-pound amberjack in another. But those world records were hard won, to the extent that Goodwin was all but presumed dead when he was airlifted to USC University Hospital, where he was quickly saddled with a dead-on-arrival toe tag. Luckily, he would regain consciousness, but it took him the better part of a year to recover from his brush with death. Not that it would stop him from living life on his own terms, as he would go on to rupture his lung again while participating in the exact same activity— in a moment that seemed to suggest the universe trying to give the guy a sign. But Goodwin was skilled at finding other ways to satisfy his appetite for thrills. For instance, while enrolled at San Diego State University, Goodwin began his career as a promoter by holding extravagant parties that charged 50 cents per entry for women and $1.50 for the men. His parties became legendary, and Goodwin took the hint, changing his major from mechanical engineering to marketing. Not that he would finish the degree, as he received a job offer to join Procter & Gamble in the sales department, and quickly dropped out to try and make his way in the world. He bounced from Procter & Gamble to a San Diego-based promotion firm, where he then made his way up the ladder to become a surprisingly adept promoter. Adept promoter. Why is that so hard to say? In particular, he seemed to enjoy working with the more problematic stars and their agents, as his good friend and colleague John Bradley would recall. Goodwin promoted concerts for everyone from The Doors to Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin to Ray Charles, The Rolling Stones to The Beach Boys. He even promoted concerts for Sonny and Cher for crying out loud. Goodwin was a guy who had contacts in the entertainment industry and inroads to numerous venues across the United States so that he always seemed capable of delivering a big show when it counted. Granted, job security never seemed great when you were essentially putting your career on the line with each house, praying that the ticket sales would justify your salary. It was a position Goodwin didn't particularly relish after a few years, noting how stressful the job inevitably became, especially with Janis Joplin's final tour. Although Goodwin never went into detail, he described the entire enterprise as one big, traumatic experience. So he did the only thing he thought he could do. He quit. With his wife, Diane, Goodwin bought an old Volkswagen and spent the next several years roaming North and South America. It allowed him the opportunity to clear his head and figure out what he wanted to do with his life. 
For better or worse, travel has the ability to provide clarity to even the most clouded mind, especially for a guy like Goodwin, a guy with heaps of potential but no new direction in which to channel it. Yet, sure enough, lightning would strike just around the corner. And, as it turns out, that lightning would end up striking Goodwin when it does most men. While sitting on the toilet. As Goodwin sat on the john in a hotel in Belize, he read a motorcycle magazine article about a motocross event that drew a near-sellout crowd of 17,000 fans in Madison Square Garden. Despite virtually no widespread promotion and a fairly amateurish presentation, Suddenly, Goodwin knew what his next promotional venture would be, and Goodwin moved forward with turning that idea into a reality. In 1972, the motorsports world witnessed the birth of Supercross, which would inevitably go on to become the second biggest motorsport in the United States before long. This was thanks to Goodwin, credited by many as the father of Supercross, in much the same way Mickey Thompson was viewed as the father of drag racing. On the strength of his reputation as a successful rock concert promoter, Goodwin was able to reach out to the LA Coliseum with the proposal to host a motocross event. Mind you, Goodwin had no experience in promoting motorsports, but in his mind, it wasn't exactly that big of a leap to go from rock concerts to motorcycles, since the operative principle was the same. Give the people a big, loud, colorful spectacle, affordable tickets, and an opportunity to get drunk and fill their stomachs with terrible food that costs five times what it would just about anywhere else in the world. And make sure there was plenty of merch to sell, of course, and big personalities in which people could invest their fandom. It was academic. In a sense, Goodwin's plan was to turn motorsports into the sort of pandemonium worthy of pro wrestling with guys you cheered for, others you rooted against, and huge spots you anticipated getting to see. The AMA Supercross Championship became one of the biggest events in racing, billed as the Super Bowl of Motorsports. The event was co-promoted by Goodwin and then-president of the American Motorcyclist Association, Terry Tiernan. Part of the spectacle of the event was its first winner, someone with whom both Mickey and Danny Thompson would likely identify, in that he was basically a young kid who had made his way in the world of motorsports. Marty Tripes was a 16-year-old kid who had overcome all of his competition to become the first Supercross champion under the promotion of Goodwin and Tiernan, setting the standard for the years to come. And the positive press that was received from that first annual competition led to the second Super Bowl of motocross eclipsing the attendance of the first, as the event was held in stadiums in both the United States and Canada, technically becoming an international event, depending on what semantics mean to you. The AMA Supercross Championship races followed a territory system, with Goodwin promoting in the West, while Pace Motorsports controlled the Midwest and Southwest, and Supersports promoted in the East. It was a coordinated effort to raise the profile of motorsports nationwide, with a particular goal of making indoor stadium Supercross an enduring, timeless American novelty, along the lines of monster truck events, demolition derbies, rodeos, and pro wrestling. Goodwin's innate magnetism made him a businessman everyone wanted a piece of, as venues reached out to Goodwin to negotiate bookings. Even CBS made an offer to pay to broadcast the Supercross events. In the late 70s and early 80s, 
the NFL had typically been the only organization capable of so many consecutive stadium sellouts. Yet Supercross was beginning to take hold, selling out the Pasadena Rose Bowl, the LA Coliseum, and venues from Anaheim to San Diego. There were celebrity spectators like Steve McQueen, daunting ramps and perilous 100-foot horizontal jumps, and women in skimpy outfits like ring girls at a boxing match, because of course there were. The crowds were raucous and wild, and the shows were a visceral thrill-fest. Goodwin even made contacts outside the sports world to secure sponsorship deals. Commercials on local network affiliates, as well as promos on radio stations throughout the territory, ensured a healthy business. Goodwin even became a character in his own promotion, in a way. As a rock concert promoter, Goodwin had learned a thing or two about the benefits of showmanship, and so he played the part of the big-time boss man. We're talking about a guy who wore fur coats and custom-made suits, who drove around in expensive cars and ate at restaurants that were basically an average man's mortgage served on a plate. He flashed money pretty much everywhere he went, between bragging about making 600 large in a single night off one of his shows, to rolling around town in a hand-built Clinette reproduction, to owning Grace Kelly's Rolls Royce which he drove as the Princess of Monaco. Goodwin went through money like a marathon cyclist through water. He even reacquainted himself with his thrill-seeking habits, hunting wild boar and Kodiak bears, and getting into motorcycle crashes at 132 miles per hour in an accident that would cost him the skin off one of his butt cheeks. The man was literally losing his ass out there. A situation made all the worse when his marriage dissolved. And yet, while you'd expect some level of introspection after a divorce, Goodwin had basically become a free man, which meant he had license to go whole hog on the Playboy lifestyle. He built a house just off Laguna Beach that featured a spiral staircase, an indoor waterfall, and ample room for his hunting trophies. Naturally, his ego grew in conjunction with his wealth, and it made him a nightmare to work under. He became domineering and difficult to work with, as his staff had a high rate of turnover from all the people quitting in tears over Goodwin's treatment. But by his own admission, Goodwin wasn't a people person, and he didn't give a damn if any of the people who worked with him liked him or not. As he would famously say, All I care about is results. If someone has a contract with me and they don't perform, I'll take their legs off. Now, at the risk of quoting a popular song at the time, Goodwin didn't give a damn about his reputation. He was the father of Supercross, and his kingdom was his to rule in the manner in which he saw fit. Going as far as to name the various obstacles on the track, and vowing that only the best riders would be able to conquer the course. When motocross racer Bob Hurricane Hanna complained about the difficulty of a certain section of the course, known as the Whoop section, which amounted to little more than two telephone poles laid horizontally and then buried in the dirt, Goodwin got angry and climbed onto his Husqvarna bike to give it a shot, believing Hanna had no idea what he was talking about. Now, given his history with motorcycles at high speeds, it wasn't that surprising when Goodwin crashed on his first attempt. But he kept at it, and succeeded on his second attempt without incident, leaving Goodwin feeling vindicated in his faith that the track was structurally sound, despite the objections of the more experienced Hanna. But then, that's just the kind of swagger Goodwin had. The guy was possessed of a cavalier, devil-may-care attitude. And while he wasn't a people person, 
he wouldn't ask any of his racers to try anything that he himself wouldn't be willing to try. Yet, for all his credibility as a rock concert promoter, and all the effort he put into refining the tracks for a more dangerous yet controlled experience, the hot hand wouldn't last. I mean, how could it? Goodwin was spending money faster than he could make it, and attendance had begun to wane into the Reagan years. After some time, Goodwin's shows actually began losing money, due to the cost of the spectacle weighed against the revenue those shows were actually bringing in. While it wasn't inconceivable that Goodwin would struggle, this wasn't the Goodwin who quit concert promoting to drive a VW bus around the Northern Hemisphere with his wife. This was a Goodwin who tasted the blissful highs of unfathomable wealth. He was used to living large, and he wasn't about to go back to anything less. But as the 80s continued, what choice would Goodwin have? Naturally, Goodwin wasn't the only person facing difficulty in his life as a motorsports promoter. At the same time, the father of drag racing himself, Mickey Thompson, was in dire straits. Through the Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group, Mickey had gotten into the world of event promotion, and though he'd established a loyal audience, it wasn't the size it needed to be in order for the events to truly turn a profit. Throughout the 70s and early 80s, MTEG had run motocross shows across the country, with Baja buggies, pickup trucks, and off-road vehicles, with Mickey and Trudy Thompson working at the MTEG offices well into the late night hours, planning, organizing, negotiating, doing the day-to-day -day work of putting these shows on. It was tedious, but it was necessary. And yet, these events still struggled to make money, because sponsorships were lacking, and attendance wasn't great. And even though Mickey's events were far more modest, and lacked the half-naked women and elaborate courses of Goodwin's events, they still cost a small fortune to run, between the 25 million pounds of dirt the average show required, and the countless orders of plywood to form the tracks, along with all the workers required to build it. But unlike Field of Dreams, there's no guarantee that if Mickey built it, anyone would come. Another element adding to Mickey's financial situation was Trudy's chronic knee problems. An expensive orthoscopic knee surgery did nothing to relieve Trudy's ongoing issues, and doctors feared she could become crippled as a result of her worsening condition. Had MTEG been more successful, the Thompsons might have been able to weather the storm without seeking a merger. But times were getting tough. Through 13 years of marriage, Trudy had never asked Mickey to give up his passions. Trudy was more than just a smiling, understanding wife. She was a true partner to Mickey, helping to organize events for MTEG, and keeping the sort of level-headedness that balanced out Mickey's quick-tempered nature. Trudy was committed to seeing her husband succeed, because she loved him. And that love was reflected in Mickey, who treasured his second wife, and decided to put her health above his business ventures. For Mickey, it wasn't even a choice. He put procedures into motion to remove himself and Trudy from the grueling, time-consuming work of actually staging the MTEG events, hoping that by getting her off her feet, her body would have a chance to truly mend, hopefully improving her condition. Bill Marcel, who at that time was the vice president of MTEG, recalled that despite concerns friends and colleagues had raised about Goodwin, 
Mickey felt he didn't have much of a choice. Mickey told me a lot of people warned him about Goodwin, but he was so concerned about Trudy's health. He felt it was worth a gamble to go into business with the guy. Sal Fish, who'd promoted with Mickey as part of SCORE International, added that the partnership was unlikely to be a fruitful one. I told Mickey, there's no way. You guys are going to eat each other alive. Fish would elaborate on the differences between Thompson and Goodwin. Mickey was the type of guy you'd run into, and his clothes would be a mess. He'd be spitting out a hot dog out of his mouth, excitingly telling you about what he's been up to for the past 48 hours, and gone through fire doing some project, and had just lost a million dollars. But he didn't care, and he was going to do it again. Goodwin, on the other hand, would be wearing his fur coat, driving his clinet, telling you about his new art collection, and about how he just made a few million on his latest deal. But they were both the type who wanted things to go their own way. You couldn't merge two immovable forces. And yet, well, in retrospect, those words would prove to be prophetic. No one could have imagined just how far this feud would go. Even in the world of motorsports, where emotions ran high and egos ran hot, in the midst of it all, no one could truly fathom the direction the partnership was headed, or just how horrible its outcome would be. With both men at a point of desperation, Mickey Thompson agreed to merge MTEG with Mike Goodwin's Stadium Motorsports Corporation, signing an agreement on April 1st, 1984. There would be an 18-month engagement period prior to the merger taking effect, but the reality was set in stone. Mickey Thompson and Mike Goodwin were now business partners. Ownership and financial responsibilities of both companies were split, 70% to Mickey Thompson and 30% to Mike Goodwin. In theory, this partnership should have worked. There really is no reason it shouldn't have when you consider that you had the flashy showbiz allure that the father of Supercross could bring to the table, paired with the legitimacy of a motorsports icon, the automotive living legend known as the King of Speed. While they may have fundamentally parted ways on their respective lifestyles, with Mickey as the everyman to Goodwin's rock star persona, they seem to be an ideal match as business partners, because their philosophies aligned. Fans wanted speed and excitement. Goodwin and Thompson wanted to deliver, and make money hand over fist in the process. But there's only so much that two men can do against a changing tide of public interest. You could make the argument that Supercross was still popular, but it was quickly becoming popular in a niche sort of way, losing that mass appeal that had made it so popular only ten years earlier. And that niche was growing smaller and smaller, so that by the time the merger went through, Mickey and Mike didn't really have much of a pool from which to draw where fans were concerned. Their first production was in Indianapolis, a race planned to take place just a few months after they signed the merger agreement. It was the summer of 1984, and hopes were high that business could take off again. And while the event did draw a decent crowd, it was a familiar sensation for Mickey. High expenses coupled with attendance that wasn't nearly good enough to make up the difference. Still, he and Goodwin charged forth, setting up their next event at the legendary Silverdome in Pontiac, Michigan. Unfortunately, it was an event that was in the red before the doors were even opened to the public. 
Needless to say, neither man got what he wanted out of the partnership. It turns out, Goodwin's rock concert expertise and Supercross pioneering didn't do much to boost the reputation of Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group. And by the same standard, Mickey Thompson's motorsports credibility didn't do jack to reignite the fire Goodwin had started with Supercross over a decade earlier. To say this soured whatever friendship they might have formed would be an understatement. If you could even say that they'd formed a friendship at all. But the relationship would go from strained to downright acrimonious, as the two men soon found one another on opposite ends of a court of law. It all started with two events, the Hoosier Dome show in Indiana and the Pontiac Silverdome show in Michigan. Long story short, the Stadium Motorsports Corporation contacted Mickey on behalf of Goodwin, as some $60,000 in bills were owed to run the show, and so he paid the $60,000. But this happened again at the Silverdome show, this time to the tune of $107,000. Mickey felt an obligation to see that his employees were paid, so he cut the check. But prior to putting up the dough, he would need to confront Goodwin directly about his failed financial obligations. Mickey looped Goodwin in on a conference call with Goodwin's own president of marketing, a woman named Jeannie Bear Sleeper, to figure out what the hell was going on. In a later deposition, Mickey stated he couldn't understand Sleeper through her hysterical crying, presumably from the sheer stress of running a show on a non-existent budget. You see, as it turned out, they needed to write checks, but there was no money in the accounts, which utterly baffled Mickey, who had been led to believe that his deal with Goodwin indicated a 70-30 split, with both men splitting profits and enduring losses for their share in addition to the financial responsibilities of actually putting these shows on in the first place. But Mike Goodwin didn't see it that way, viewing the financial responsibilities as Mickey's to cover. Mickey would later recall, And I said to Mike, What do you mean you haven't put any money in? Mike said, I've never put any money in, and I'm not going to put any money in now. (laughs) Excuse me. Later, when Mickey demanded a financial statement from Goodwin, his secretary stated she had been told not to give him one. For his part, Goodwin would swear that the conference call actually played out the opposite way from how Mickey described it, as it was Thompson who refused to put in any money. Regardless, things got heated, and Goodwin ultimately refused to pay, arguing that the engagement period of the merge agreement was still in effect, and he was under no obligation to split expenses with MTEG until after that period had ended despite these shows being co-promoted under the respective banners of Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group and Stadium Motorsports Corporation. So Mickey lawyered up and filed against Goodwin in Los Angeles Superior Court, prompting Goodwin to quickly file a countersuit. By September 1984, it was on. Mickey Thompson and Mike Goodwin were suing each other for control of their joint venture. The case made headlines, but it didn't actually take that long for a ruling to come in. By October of 1984, Mickey was granted control of MTEG, but not Stadium Motorsports Corporation. What the lawsuit had done was essentially untangle the merger, but even though Mickey had gotten his company back, he was still on the hook for the debt the company had accrued during the period of the merger's effect. 
The judgment also included a non-compete clause, stipulating that neither man could run events of their competitor's class, meaning Mickey could only run car-related events, while Goodwin could only run motorcycle events. As quickly as they had gone into business with one another, it seemed that Thompson and Goodwin had been liberated from the yoke of mutual interest. And yet, that wasn't really the case at all. You see, Goodwin decided to violate the non-compete clause by integrating cars into the halftime events at all of his Supercross shows. Now, you would think Mickey would simply file another suit and score another judgment against Goodwin, but instead, he decided to fight fire with fire, as childish as this tactic would prove to be. Mickey opted to run motorcycles during the Off-Road Championship Grand Prix, which meant both men were now in violation of the non-compete clause and both would end up in a court of law yet again. But here's the thing. Just like last time, Mickey won. In May 1986, the court found in favor of Thompson to the tune of $750,000, which Goodwin and Stadium Motorsports Corporation were ordered to pay. Goodwin appealed the ruling, but he lost again. Granted, this didn't mean Mickey would be getting his money anytime soon, although not for lack of trying, as his attorneys did everything in their power to collect from Goodwin, only to discover that Stadium Motorsports Corporation had rebranded as Entertainment Specialties Incorporated, or ESI. Through this rebranding process, Goodwin was able to file for bankruptcy protection, prompting Mickey's attorneys to go after Goodwin directly, rather than his company but Goodwin remained a step ahead by declaring bankruptcy himself. In a quick-witted play, Goodwin had his wife Diane, who was now back in the picture, and his business associate Chuck Clayton purchase the assets of ESI at a bankruptcy auction in December 1986, and then rebrand the organization once again as Supercross Incorporated, or SXI. As the bosses of the newly founded company, Clayton and Diane hired Goodwin with a salary of $240,000 per year. Goodwin had successfully moved his assets into a new company that he himself didn't own, meaning Mickey couldn't come after any of it. And it was all legal. At least from my limited understanding of financial legalities. So Mickey struck back by beating Goodwin at his own game. Promoting. In 1987, Mickey outbid SXI to earn an exclusive motorsports contract with Anaheim Stadium, as MTEG had undergone a complete corporate restructuring in the wake of Mickey's reduction of his and Trudy's involvement in the organization of events. Basically, it's just a way of saying there were new executives installed. Good people who knew what they were doing, who could get things done efficiently and at lower cost and potentially higher profits, without Mickey and Trudy having to be involved in the day-to-day operations. In comparison to the restructured Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group, SXI seemed ill-equipped to handle stadium-level shows. This may have been the breaking point for Goodwin, who would admit to the press that there was no way his business could survive without Anaheim, since the Anaheim Supercross event financially supported all the other events that SXI planned on running in a given year. It was their most profitable territory, and they had suddenly been shut out of it. Somehow, it seemed as though the failures of the two merger shows Thompson and Goodwin had put on left no real stain on Mickey Thompson. Instead, it was Goodwin, 
perhaps blemished by the court judgments against him over the years, who found himself now struggling to get bookings. Humiliated, Goodwin tried to embarrass Mickey by serving him with an unfair competition suit during the press conference to announce the Anaheim Stadium exclusivity deal. But Mickey caught wind of the plot and intercepted the papers before the server could pull some Shakespearean scene stealery that would have removed the focus from the milestone Anaheim deal and instead moved the spotlight back to Goodwin. So Goodwin escalated by taking his fight against Mickey all the way to the Supreme Court, continuing to challenge that initial 1986 judgment after the appellate court had upheld the ruling. However, in January 1988, Goodwin's petition to the Supreme Court was denied, and that was the end of all legal recourse for Mike Goodwin, who'd now spent well over a million dollars fighting Mickey in court, well in excess of the $750,000 he had initially been ordered to pay. In essence, Goodwin would have been better off just paying Mickey the seven hundred fifty dollars in the first place. But now, to outside observers, Goodwin was ruined. His business was in shambles, his ego battered by the constant defeats, and his psyche completely compromised as he'd become paranoid over the course of the prolonged legal battle, believing that Mickey Thompson was purposely trying to ruin him. Ronald Colomb, who was one of the 14 attorneys Goodwin had gone through over the years of fighting Mickey in court, stated that the lawsuits cut into the earnings of SXI to such an extent that 1988 was an outright disaster, made worse by Colomb jumping ship and working for Mickey, further fueling Goodwin's belief that Thompson was out to get him. But for Colomb, it was more about working with a client who wasn't always at the point of hair-trigger volatility. Mike and I... I've seen him fly off the handle quite a bit. You know, if something made him angry, he would scream, rant, and rave, and throw a fit. He had a hard time dealing with situations when a lot of things went wrong at one time. The, the, the guy would just go crazy. He couldn't handle losing. He once said to an associate, if I go down, Mickey's going to go down with me. That's a matter of record. I reported it to the sheriff's department. I also told him that I received death threats from Mike. He called me at 1 o'clock in the morning and threatened to kill me. It was right after I started working with Mickey, when the litigation was getting really serious. He was upset. He he sounded really wild, swearing, cussing, calling me names, saying, I'm going to kill you, you're a dead man, and on and on. Mickey got similar threats from Mike, which he later told me about. Now, from what I could find online, police action doesn't appear to have been taken against Goodwin for these threats but they were all a matter of public knowledge among both Mickey's and Goodwin's respective circle of confidants. Had the police gotten involved, would what came next have ever happened? It's hard to say. I mean, even with the death threats, it seemed beyond anyone's ability to fathom that it would come to violence. Especially since there are questions to this day as to who was actually responsible for setting into motion the tragedy that ensued. On the morning of March 16, 1988, 14-year-old Allison Triarcy was taking a shower in her home at the bottom of the hill in a gated community in Bradbury, California. Her house was just across the street from the Thompson home. At approximately 6 a.m., Allison could hear the sounds of horrible shrieks and a lot of screaming, and multiple gunshots originating from the vicinity of the Thompson residence. 
Her mother heard the shots as well, rushing in to check on her daughter and then hiding her in the dining room. This is an important distinction because of the floor-to-ceiling windows in the dining room of the Triarcy home. In essence, Allison could see everything happening at the Thompson estate as it was happening. She could see Mickey by the garage door at the top of the driveway, and Trudy towards the end of the driveway below. One assailant had a gun trained on Mickey, while the other headed towards Trudy, who, by this point, was already crawling away from the approaching gunman. Allison heard Mickey repeatedly pleading with the assailant, begging, quote, Please don't kill my wife. Mickey had already been shot and struggled to stand up. Trudy had been shot as well, incapable of escaping. All she could do was reach her knees by the time the assailant came upon her. She placed her hands up to protect herself and begged, Please, please don't kill me. The gunman then shot Trudy in the head. Allison claims she saw Mickey trying to move towards Trudy, extremely upset, screaming, crying, just moments before the other gunman delivered the fatal bullet. Although she was in a momentary state of shock over what she'd just witnessed, Allison snapped into action and raced to the Thompson driveway. To her, it seemed, Trudy might still be alive, so she rushed to the scene. But by this point, Trudy was completely motionless, with a gunshot wound to the head. Allison wanted to go to Mickey, but then she heard other gunshots and ducked behind a stone wall. Allison's mother realized her daughter had gone out to the Thompsons and, panic-stricken, rushed to be by her daughter's side. Both mother and daughter hid behind the stone wall until the assailants left on their 10-speed bicycles. Simultaneously, another neighbor named Lance Johnson was stirred awake by the sound of gunshots. He ran to the nearest window and heard Mickey pleading for Trudy's life. When gunfire rang out again, Johnson went to his safe and got his gun, and then went to the window at the front of his home, where he saw the two assailants fleeing on their bicycles. Because the drinking water in this gated community apparently gives everyone who drinks it balls the size of Andre the Giant's hands, Johnson chased after the suspects as they passed his home, yelling for them to stop, and then firing at them as they fled. Moments later, a woman named Wilma Johnson, no relation to Lance, was driving eastbound when the two assailants darted in front of her on their bikes, causing her to slam the brakes on her van. A similar account came from a Ms. Claudette Freidinger, who was returning home from dropping her son off at work, only to see two men on bicycles sail past a four-way stop. While not every account was in agreement, the general consensus of the witness accounts described the shooters as two African-American males in their 20s, wearing hoodies and riding bicycles. Though Trudy had $70,000 in jewelry on her person, and she and Mickey carried $4,000 in cash between them, the men had taken nothing. They simply fled downhill on their 10-speed bicycles, nearly getting blindsided by a woman driving her dog to a training class. As they raced past North Royal Oaks Avenue, the men exited the way they came in, through an opening in a grape-stake picket fence vanishing down an old railway passage that had since been converted to a jogging path. The men were in the wind. Mickey and Trudy Thompson were dead. And it didn't take long for the news to make the rounds. 
Initially, employees at the Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group only heard that there had been a shooting and that there was a body in the driveway. No one knew whether it was Mickey or Trudy, or a potential perpetrator. It was almost inconceivable that both Mickey and Trudy were gone. Who would want to kill either of them, much less both? But when Bill Marcel went down to the Thompson residence, he found the place swarming with police. The vice president of operations for MTEG saw his boss lying in the driveway, 50 feet away from the woman who'd been a daily presence in the MTEG offices for as long as he could remember. The police were still combing the scene and interviewing witnesses when Marcel got there, but eventually a detective took a statement from him, hoping for insight into this seemingly pointless slaughter. When the detective asked if there was anyone with motive to murder the Thompsons, only one name came to Marcel's mind. And yet, it would take the better part of nearly two decades for justice to be served. And whether or not justice was actually served depends on whom you ask. Although police liked Mike Goodwin for the killings from the very start, there was no evidence actually tying him to the crime. Not that anyone truly believed Mike took part in the killings himself. No, if, if Mike Goodwin was responsible, he had to have hired someone to do the killings for him. At least that was the theory. If nothing else, Goodwin had the motive. He was overheard by countless people threatening Mickey's life, resentfully decrying Mickey's attempts to ruin him. And it was clear to everyone who knew Goodwin that the success the Thompsons had in court against him, which resulted in bankruptcy proceedings, had basically been the final straw. But there was nothing to tie him to any wrongdoing. The investigation into Mike Goodwin stalled. Enter Colleen Campbell. Mickey Thompson's sister. Like many who would come to know him in the automotive world, Colleen placed her brother on a pedestal. And why not? Mickey had alpha male charisma, became a world-famous motorsports champion, and broke countless speed records. Colleen looked up to her big brother, so she was naturally devastated when she learned he'd been murdered, along with her sister-in-law. Even more so than that, she was furious that the police had proven unable to tie the crime to Goodwin, as she felt this was all but an open and shut case. If he killed my brother, then I want him brought to justice, and I will do everything in my power to make that happen. It was a determination forged in familiarity with loss, as Mickey wasn't the first loved one Colleen had lost to senseless, violent crime in the 1980s. In April 1982, Colleen's son Scott vanished. No one knew what had happened to him, and the police were short on leads. But Colleen and her husband, Gary, tirelessly petitioned local authorities to look into their son's case, which some had assumed to be a voluntary disappearance. After all, Scott was a grown man in his late 20s, and there were no indications that he had met with foul play. Police simply dismissed her pleas by stating that he was likely holed up somewhere with another man's wife. But Colleen knew better, and it wasn't like Scott to just disappear without telling anyone. Throughout this trying period, the Campbells had the support of their closest friends, Eugene and Laverne Cowell, who Scott knew personally through their son, Larry. 
The closeness of the two families was emblematic of the types of bonds formed in California communities such as this one, San Juan Capistrano. Your family were your friends, and your friends were your family. With the strength gained from her friend's support, Colleen proceeded with an investigation of her own. For one, Colleen knew that Scott was leaving for North Dakota on business on the morning he disappeared, so she felt it might be necessary to widen the net on her search. Yet she knew that she was very likely searching for a dead body. You see, she and Scott were close, and they spoke on the phone nearly every single day. If Scott had gone this long without making contact, something had to have happened, and... Out of all the possible scenarios she could think of, Colleen resigned herself to the one she felt most likely, as horrific a possibility as this was for any mother to confront. And yet, it was ultimately Colleen's investigation into her son's travel arrangements that unraveled the complex web of his disappearance. The investigation revealed that Scott had planned on taking a commercial airplane to Fargo, North Dakota, but he thought better of it. Why? Because the business he had in North Dakota was of the illegal variety. He had plans on selling over a pound of cocaine, and he didn't want to risk being caught carrying it aboard a commercial, domestic flight. So he looked into chartering a private plane after getting into contact with a man named Donald Damasio, an alleged member of the Vagos motorcycle gang, according to official court documents. He also contacted a second man, Larry Cowell, the son of his parents' best friends. The plan was to meet the buyer in Fargo and split the profits on the drug deal three ways. Colleen learned this by contacting Scott's girlfriend, learning about the airplane trip, and tirelessly searching one airfield parking lot after another until she found Scott's car. She then checked the airfield flight logs and learned that Larry Cowell had chartered a plane for the group. The plane was still in the hangar and still had bloodstains on one of the curtains. This was enough to convince Anaheim police to go undercover, wearing wires and playing the roles of mob enforcers, to whom Scott had been in deep debt. Separately, the investigators got Cowell and Damasio to confess to the entire plan on tape. It was a robbery gone wrong. They had attempted to take the drugs off Scott once they were in the air. But Scott put up a struggle, so Demacio broke his neck, and the two men disposed of his body as they were flying over the Pacific Ocean, about a mile off Catalina Island. The men were subsequently arrested and put on trial for the killing. The trial lasted several weeks and even saw Mickey Thompson called to the stand as a witness for the prosecution, as he had evidence that destroyed Larry Cowell's alibi for the murder. While Mickey's testimony wasn't viewed as critical to the prosecution's case, it did prove valuable in creating a complete picture of guilt for both Cowell and Damasio. Both Cowell and Damasio were found guilty of first-degree murder. Larry Cowell was sentenced to 25 years to life, while Donald Damasio was sentenced to life with no possibility of parole. It had taken the jury less than half a day to reach this verdict, which angered Larry Cowell's father. Eugene. I think the jury should have deliberated longer. I don't think this was possibly enough time to have reviewed everything. With that said, Cowell insisted that his son would, quote, take his sentence like a man, end quote. 
But Cowell eventually had to be retried for the crime after it was discovered that his confession had been obtained under duress. Yet, in the second trial, the verdict remained the same as in the first. By the time Cowell was finally sentenced in January 1990, Colleen Campbell had spent close to a decade chasing justice. It's been seven years, nine months, and nine days. That's a long time to go through a funeral every day. Yet throughout her grief, Colleen's heart still went out to the Cowles, despite their formerly close friendship essentially becoming unsalvageable as a result of the case, particularly since the Cowles apparently blamed Colleen and Scott himself for the trouble that their son got into, rather than placing the blame on Larry himself. And yet, learning that Scott was an aspiring drug dealer opened Colleen's eyes to the willful blindness of unconditional love for one's child, whether they're nine or twenty-nine. Just because Scott did a bad thing didn't mean that Colleen loved him any less, and she understood that the Cowles felt the same way about their son. I still feel badly for the Cow family, because they don't deserve what they went through. But there is something about parents giving unconditional love. It's not their fault. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm telling you all of this. Well, it's because, in a very broad sense, Scott Campbell's murder created a domino effect that led to the unraveling of the Mickey Thompson case as Colleen would become a victim's rights advocate in the years following the conviction of her son's murderers. Scott's body was never found, and if it can be said that one never gets over the death of their child, then it can only be assumed that the pain is exacerbated by the lack of closure when a family doesn't get to bury that child, to pay their proper respects. But instead of allowing the loss to break her, Colleen pursued her life as an activist, and eventually transitioned into politics, becoming the very first female mayor in the history of San Juan Capistrano. And it's this position as mayor that gave Colleen a little more leverage than she might have had otherwise in getting certain leads checked out. In the immediate aftermath of the Thompson murder, Police didn't have much to go on but the vague description of African-American men in hoodies, speeding away on bikes, and vanishing into thin air. Sure, Colleen wasn't mayor of the jurisdiction where the crime took place, but there is something to be said about a mayor reaching out to a police department to see that justice is being done. And Colleen's follow-up with the investigation unearthed some previously unknown details. For instance, just days before the murders, Goodwin had sent memos to his attorney, proposing a settlement that would cancel the judgments against him in exchange for Mickey getting the rights to all of Goodwin's Supercross events, in addition to a waiver of all claims against Mickey. Goodwin would even stand down from contesting the Anaheim exclusivity contract. It was a deal that was very close to going through, potentially settling years of animosity between the two businessmen. But Goodwin apparently made an 11th hour demand to draw down some $300,000 from his wife's Palm Desert property. Mickey felt like he was on the verge of being taken for a ride, so he backed out of the deal, leaving Goodwin back at square one. Just two days later, the Thompsons were murdered. In May 1997, Mark Lillenfeld, 
the detective who took over the murder investigation, pored over the witness reports from the period following the slayings, and what he found was an indication that while Goodwin didn't pull the trigger, he was intimately involved in the planning of the crime, as witnesses had reportedly come forward with claims that two men watched the Thompson home from their car, observing the movements of the household through their binoculars. More than one witness identified Goodwin as one of the men in the car. Adding to the suspicions surrounding him, Goodwin took a trip to the Caribbean after the murders despite being under active police investigation. Granted, he didn't have nearly enough money to remain abroad, but investigators would theorize that Goodwin was meeting with the hitmen in a secluded location in order to pay them off. But again, they couldn't prove anything, so they found a crime that would stick, as Goodwin spent 30 months in prison for filing false loan statements. Naturally, this caused Goodwin's paranoia to transfer from Mickey to Colleen, as he now believed that Mickey's vendetta had been inherited by his sister, and that she was now making it her mission to ruin him, and see him permanently behind bars. And yet, Colleen welcomed the animosity. Detective Lillenfeld was every bit as determined. His ballistics investigation showed that the 9mm bullets used to kill Mickey and Trudy likely came from a Smith & Wesson Model 469, similar to the one Goodwin purchased in 1984. Incriminating enough on its own, but not enough for a conviction. But Lillenfeld also discovered that just days after the killings, Goodwin purchased the exact same model. Why would he do this? I mean, well... I suppose a theory would be that he'd given his model to the killers to use, and then realized that he would be implicated if they were caught, and so he needed a duplicate weapon to show the police to prove the gun was in his possession the entire time and was not the murder weapon, even though one would think that it would come out that he bought the same gun just days after the murder. Either way, it looks suspicious. Additional evidence came in the form of Ronald Stevens, a Thompson neighbor who identified Goodwin as one of two men with binoculars spying on the Thompson household while parked in a green 1970s Chevy Malibu. Stevens had assumed the men were spying on the nearby elementary school and confronted the duo. However, the men quickly sped off before Stevens could question them about their intentions. Although the case wasn't airtight, the DA had more than enough to take to a grand jury, and in December 2001, 13 years after Mickey and Trudy Thompson were gunned down in their own driveway, Mike Goodwin was arrested on two counts of first-degree murder. And yet, Goodwin wasn't going to be a pushover, not by any stretch of the imagination. While confined to his cell, Goodwin familiarized himself with the state's case and quickly began to poke holes in the supposed evidence. For instance, the gun that had been used to kill Mickey and Trudy had six lands and grooves, whereas the gun he owned only had five. It was a rare win for Goodwin, as he got the prosecution and Lillenfeld himself to admit that they'd made a mistake in identifying the gun. This prompted Goodwin's biggest supporter, his good friend John Bradley, to mockingly begin calling Lillenfeld Mr. Ballistics. Furthermore, the Stevens idea of Goodwin as one of the men in the Chevy Malibu seemed dubious at best, since the car not only would have been facing away from the Thompson household if it had been parked in the manner in which Stevens described, it would have also had an obstructed view, even if parked facing in the direction of the Thompson's house. Goodwin's defense attorney, Elena Saris, 
argued it was laughable to imply that the men in the Malibu were spying on the Thompson house, and that it was just as likely that the men were perverts eyeing up the local elementary school. Which isn't exactly a comforting notion, but hey, Ms. Saris had a job to do. Case in point, Saris also tore apart the state's motive, claiming that Mickey didn't ruin Goodwin at all, since Mickey never actually collected on the massive court judgment against him. Of the $768,000 he was owed, Mickey only got about $1,800, and most of it was in car parts. Yet the prosecution held fast to the Stevens ID, as well as countless witnesses who overheard Goodwin threatening to kill the Thompsons. It might not have been the strongest case in the world, but the presiding judge stated that the charges against Goodwin would be upheld, and that the case would proceed to trial, declaring, Of all the evidence presented in this case, there is simply no one else the court can say committed this crime. Not that this prevented Goodwin from offering his own theories as to who might have murdered Mickey and Trudy Thompson. Over the five years he was held without bail, with any number of legal irregularities preventing a speedy trial, which is a whole other can of worms in itself, Goodwin offered alternative theories to the crime based mostly on supposition, but also some surprising developments. For instance, it could have been Saudis who had the Thompsons whacked over faulty auto parts they may or may not have been sold. Or maybe it was a Mexican drug cartel, angry about a hypothetical scenario in which Thompson used his off-road events in Mexico to traffic drugs on their turf without cutting them in on the profits. Could it have been the Vagos motorcycle gang retaliating for Mickey's testimony in the Scott Campbell case? Or might it have been a banker Mickey borrowed from without repaying? Hell, in Goodwin's increasingly cinematic scenarios, it's just as likely that an addict killed the Thompsons for drug money as Goodwin offered up the name of Joey Hunter, a two-bit hustler who actually confessed to his sister-in-law that he'd done the murder. And this is the one lead that seemed promising for Goodwin. It's true that Hunter did confess and failed three separate polygraph tests, prompting police to investigate the extent of Hunter's involvement. But the police ultimately found no evidence or motive tying Hunter to the crimes. It was concluded that Hunter's confession was a prank a sick joke on law enforcement officials. And like that, the lead was dropped. As for the other proposed theories, Mickey's colleagues came forward to pretty much shoot down the notion that he'd be involved in drugs, considering Trudy wouldn't have tolerated it. And even without Trudy as his moral compass, Mickey Thompson realistically would have never had the time to plan an elaborate drug operation while also running his various businesses. And for crying out loud, this is a guy who didn't smoke and barely even drank. Not that that necessarily has ever stopped anyone from dealing drugs if they really wanted to, but Mickey's colleagues simply found Goodwin's theories to be the delusional ramblings of a man who was clearly guilty. But in the preliminary hearing in 2004, Elena Saris held fast to her client's innocence, arguing that Colleen Campbell was the only reason this case had gotten as far as it had. She accused Campbell of everything from paying off witnesses to pressuring investigators to consider Goodwin, and only Goodwin, for the murder of the Thompsons. But the attempts to have the case dismissed offhand were rejected, and the trial proceeded in October 2006, nearly five years after Goodwin's arrest. So what kind of evidence did the state have on Goodwin? Well, the state called no fewer than 13 witnesses who directly heard Goodwin threaten Mickey Thompson's life, such as Mike DeFilippo, 
another Thompson neighbor who witnessed the slayings and recalled a conversation in which Mickey claimed that a business associate had been threatening to kill him since December, and that the person in question was very well known in the world of motocross. Colleen Campbell also affirmed that Mickey feared for his life over this entire Goodwin business. In addition to the witnesses recalling death threats against Thompson, the prosecution relied on accounts from eyewitnesses to the killings and the ensuing escape from the crime scene, such as Allison Triarcy, Lance Johnson, and Claudette Freidinger. There was also financial testimony from certified public accountant and investigative auditor Karen Stevens Kingdon, who testified with regards to how Mike Goodwin hid his assets by transferring them to his wife's name. The idea was that Mickey Thompson would be unable to come after these assets, and that Goodwin could avoid paying out the 1986 judgment against him. But more importantly, Stevens Kingdon produced bank statements proving that, on the day of the murders, $20,000 was withdrawn from Diane Goodwin's account, an account that Stevens Kingdon's testimony asserted to be stockpiled with commingled funds. Basically, the money was as good as having been drawn from Mike Goodwin's own account. Considering the time frame of the withdrawal, this was theorized by some to be the money used to pay the hitmen for the crime. Although you can make the argument that the $20,000 was towards the purchase of a yacht. But more on that in a bit. For now, the defense would argue that robbery was the reason the Thompsons were killed, not some personal vendetta Goodwin held against them. Eric Miller, a friend of the Thompsons who'd been with them the night before the murders, claimed that Mickey told him of a valuable item he'd come into possession of, and although he didn't name the exact worth in dollars, this item was said to be virtually priceless. That this item was never identified or found opened the window that robbery could have been the motive after all, while also explaining why none of the jewels or cash were taken from the Thompsons' bodies. Adding to this theory is witness testimony that claimed that one of the killers had a drawstring canvas bag slung over his shoulder as he pedaled away from the crime scene. And while it's plausible that this bag was to hide the murder weapons, it's equally plausible that this bag was to carry away this mysterious item. The defense brought in coin dealer Robert Wyborg to testify that the coins shipped via Brinks often came in the sort of bags the killers were seen fleeing with at the time although the Brinks bags typically have a metal seal at the top, which witnesses couldn't recall having noticed one way or the other. But the robbery theory was further bolstered by notes from Detective Gerald Jansen, who accompanied Colleen Campbell to the Thompson home with a locksmith, in order to check the safes in the household. According to Detective Jansen's findings, the safe seemed to have already been tampered with, as his notes read, Bolt bar bent. Fresh marks on the locking wheel. Safe empty. The bedroom safe was alleged to have contained jewelry and two envelopes of undisclosed sums of cash. Perhaps it was the jewelry and cash that Trudy and Mickey had between them at the time they were murdered, but it's hard to know for certain if anything else had been kept in the bedroom closet safe, such as the mysterious item Mickey had told Eric Miller about the day before the murder. As for the eyewitness testimony, none of it actually linked to the killings of Goodwin. I mean, it's not as if the killers announced, Mike Goodwin sends his regards, before pulling the trigger. They just killed the Thompsons and fled. Which brings up another question. You'd think if Goodwin had actually arranged the hit, he would have given up the actual shooters in exchange for leniency. Sure, maybe he thought he would beat the rap. 
but you'd think at some point he would have at least tried to get some leniency by giving up what he knew. But Goodwin held fast to his innocence, and even without a direct tie to Goodwin, the defense argued that the state didn't really have much of a case. They went as far as to attempt to discredit the eyewitness testimony by bringing in Dr. Kathy Pezdek, who clarified the various factors that can alter perceptions in witnesses and lead to mistaken IDs. As an example, Alison Triarcy was first interviewed about her recollections in 1997, nine years after the murders. And at the time, she told Detective Lillenfeld that the shooter might have been white, and that Trudy Thompson may or may not have been shot before she left her house to run toward the Thompson driveway. It essentially rendered her entire narrative of the murders unreliable. And this opens up the problem faced in countless cold case investigations. Never mind that the Thompson case had been featured on shows such as America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries in the years between the killings and the trial, which could have tainted some of the identifications, the reality is that many of the IDs were only collected after Lillenfeld took over the case in 1997, while others were collected after Goodwin's arrest in 2001, 13 years from the time of the murders. Dr. Pezdek suggested that even after 11 months, the probability of correctly and accurately identifying an assailant would be close to zero. So it's hard to imagine that the recollections were airtight, even if, on principle, one would think it would be difficult to ever forget seeing something that traumatic. Of course, movies and television have accustomed us to believe that certain shocking or traumatic moments are encased in amber for all time in our memories, when that isn't really the case. The defense also challenged the adequacy of the police investigation itself. For instance, the original lead investigator obtained Goodwin's telephone records and financial statements, but he did no such thing for Mickey Thompson's records or those of any of his employees, suggesting that the police never really considered any other suspect but Mike Goodwin. The defense also came after Detective Lillenfeld himself, noting that he never ran the Arizona license plate on the car from the Stevens ID and never showed photographs of possible African-American suspects to any of the witnesses to confirm an ID. In addition, the defense alleged that Lillenfeld never ordered DNA testing on a hair taken from a stun gun found at the crime scene, nor did he order testing on scrapings from underneath the Thompson's fingernails. This was never about getting the shooters themselves, the defense claimed, but about proving that Mike Goodwin had hired them to commit the killings. And yet still, it was difficult to deny 15 separate, independent eyewitness accounts of Goodwin vowing to have Mickey Thompson killed. It wasn't even as if these were drunken threats. These were statements made in a sober rage. This is to say nothing of Goodwin's supposed attempts to flee the jurisdiction. On March 9, 1988, just one week before the murders, Diane Goodwin was approved for a boat loan and used the funds to purchase a yacht named Believe. A short while later, Mike Goodwin sold over $350,000 in gold coins, paid with cashier's checks signed by his wife. So the $20,000 withdrawal made after the murders may have been a down payment towards this boat. Maybe. Again, in a case with this much circumstantial evidence, it's hard to really make definitive conclusions one way or the other. Regardless, in June of 1988, bilge pumps and radio equipment were installed in the yacht, 
and from all accounts, the boat was capable of transatlantic sail, and these various modifications were expedited at Goodwin's request, so that by the end of the summer, Goodwin would be out on the high seas. But by May 1991, Goodwin had defaulted on the boat payments, and the Maryland National Bank was tasked with repossessing the yacht. Over the month-long search for the Believe, Goodwin bragged over the phone to the bank agent that he would never find his boat. But sure enough, Goodwin was found on the Dulce River in Guatemala. The boat was repossessed, and Mike and Diane Goodwin were forced to return to the United States. Among other pieces of evidence against Goodwin was a 1999 conversation he'd had with a gun store owner named Randy Garrell. Despite 11 years having passed since the deaths of Mickey and Trudy Thompson, Garrell stated that Goodwin came into his store asking how guns were traced. A year later, Goodwin returned and asked if stun guns were traceable. Another close associate of Mike Goodwin, a Ms. Gail Moreau Hunter, was interviewed by Detective Lillenfeld in March 1999, as she had apparently been privy to a conversation in which Goodwin took responsibility for the murders. At one point in 1992, Goodwin showed her a tape of the Unsolved Mysteries episode about the Thompson killings. With a cold expression, Goodwin seemed to boast about his role in the murders, stating, Look what I've done, and I got away with it. Later, he would say, I hired two black teenagers to carry out the assassination. Which seems almost too on the nose to actually be true, but when you think you're above the law, you can say some pretty stupid things and assume you won't ever be held to account for having said them. But then, the bill always comes due, doesn't it? Goodwin never took the stand in his own defense. The jury deliberated, and on January 7, 2007, 19 years after Mickey and Trudy Thompson were murdered, Mike Goodwin was found guilty on both counts of first-degree murder, and was sentenced to two life terms without the possibility of parole. After the guilty verdict was read, Colleen Campbell waved a small checkered flag, signaling their victory. Tears were in her eyes, but the victory wasn't as complete as it should have been. Refuting the earlier claims that he never had the crime scene DNA run through a database, Detective Mark Lillenfeld clarified that the sample actually was in the database, and had been this entire time, and it continues to be run through the database automatically, even today but there has simply never been a hit on any criminals in the system. Despite Mike Goodwin being convicted in a court of law for putting their deaths into motion, the men who actually killed Mickey and Trudy Thompson have never been identified. Over 30 years have passed, and it's hard to imagine that there will ever be a break in the case again, barring any loose lips or new forensic evidence. Two men have escaped having to answer for a brutal, heartless crime committed in cold blood. But one could imagine that Mickey Thompson, a man who spent his life achieving things that few thought possible, would likely warn us not to rule anything out, even three decades on. Whether it's the wheels of justice or those of a souped-up car, there's always motion. As for Goodwin, he naturally appealed the verdict, claiming that Lillenfeld essentially created a fictional narrative out of whole cloth, 
In 2011, Mike Goodwin released a summary of his arguments. The following is an excerpt. As part of his scheme to falsely convict me, Lillenfeld actually reversed the true order of Mickey and Trudy's deaths, as is proven by initially suppressed but newly discovered evidence, and created a bizarre, bogus crime scene script worthy of a pulp fiction novel. He then created phantom black killers on bicycles when every crime scene witness had reported a white shooter. No crime scene witness ever reported blacks or bikes on the crime scene. He did this since he had found witnesses who spoke out for the first time 13 years after the crime and only after the reward was offered to say they saw me two and a half miles away a few days prior to the crime and also where another witness saw black riders that morning. But initially suppressed and newly discovered evidence proves that both I was not there and the riders seen near this location were not killers. It is impossible that they were. With these frauds and many more, I am told that I was the first person in U.S. history to be convicted of ordering a hit when the killers were never identified or found. We don't even know what race they were for sure. No forensic evidence connected me. It was stipulated I was not at or near the scene of the crime. There is no evidence I was connected to a conspiracy. There is no confession, and suppressed evidence proves that every allegation supporting my alleged guilt is fraudulent. Every one of them knowingly done by the DA. Four years after my conviction, my appeal still isn't filed. The court transcript has disappeared. My appeals attorney has not been able to do anything, and two cases have ruled that since the delay is caused by the state-appointed counsel, a reversal of judgment is called for now. All evidence to prove my claims is organized and ready for court. This is despite the fact that I have been severely hampered from exercising my legal rights while in prison. Access to the prison's legal law library and simple copying privileges has been severely restricted. My mail has been tampered with. Undue searches have been of my cell, which never produce anything but delay my legal research and filing abilities for days afterwards as the result of the subsequent trashing of the cell. Even my electricity is mysteriously turned off for days at a time, leaving me in the dark and unable to read out of the one good eye that I still have left. Even with the electricity on, the one light in the cell is barely adequate. I lost my vision while in because guards refused to provide me prescribed ophthalmology medication. In summary, although there are many issues that were knowingly fraudulent by the DA, the ultimate issue that allowed the wrongful conviction was the suppression of the 250-plus pieces of material exculpatory evidence, which prohibited meaningful cross-examination, which would have proven 43 perjuries and impeached the witnesses. Thus, there has been no true adversarial testing of the prosecution case, as it is anticipated slash guaranteed by the Constitution. The appeal was eventually filed, but Goodwin's conviction was upheld by the Second District Court of Appeals in 2015. Despite the decision, Goodwin's best friend and longtime supporter, John Bradley, continued to lead the charge in drawing attention to what he felt was a miscarriage of justice. And yet, Bradley explained through his website, Justice on Trial, why their appellate court loss was actually a good thing. 
Mike was actually relieved that the verdict was upheld. Strange as that may seem, there are several reasons. First, he had great trepidation about going back to the L.A. jail where he spent three years. It is a violent place, and it is our feeling there are interests out there that would benefit from Mike's death. There are few places better for such interests to get that done than the L.A. jail. Secondly, had the verdict been reversed by the appeals court, there's a chance that the D.A. would have refiled, if for no other reason than to delay the inevitable. Mike's virtually assured exoneration. Third, if the verdict had not been affirmed, this would have been on a technicality, not hard evidence. By getting the evidence we now have heard by a court, Mike will be exonerated as innocent. Once this evidence comes out at any of the above hearings, there is little or no chance of the DA refiling charges. The documentation that this was a wrongful conviction is now overwhelming. Lastly, it is Mike's desire not just to be exonerated, but he wants to expose this extreme miscarriage of justice in league with Justice on Trial Incorporated to assist in the reform of our justice system, to reduce or eliminate this spurious, malevolent conviction for political and financial reasons. That statement was three years ago, and the fight for Goodwin's freedom continues to this day but it seems unlikely Goodwin will ever see the light of day as a free man again. For all intents and purposes, Detective Lillenfeld and Colleen Campbell believe justice has been done, that they've gotten the right man, even if the shooters themselves have never been identified. And even with all the conflicting evidence laid out, a jury of his peers still convicted Mike Goodwin. For his part, Mickey's son Danny carried on his father's legacy, by taking over the Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group until its folding in 1996. He then continued his career in the automotive world, joining the Bonneville 200 Mile Per Hour Club alongside his late father in 2003. Just five years later, he would become driver of the world's fastest production Mustang, before restoring his father's 1968 Challenger II in 2016, to set a new, unblown fuel streamliner record, recording an average speed of 406.7 miles per hour, just one-tenth of a second slower than his father's record-setting land speed run at Bonneville in 1960. But on August 12, 2018, just two short months ago from the time of this video, Danny broke the overall piston-driven land speed record in the Challenger 2, recording a speed of 448.75 miles per hour. The world of motorsports has known any number of tragedies since its dawning. The death of Dale Earnhardt, the rise and fall of the Dunlop family, most notably with the recent loss of William Dunlop. There's also the 1955 Le Mans disaster, which remains, to this day, perhaps the single biggest loss of life in motorsports history. And maybe we'll get around to that in a future episode. But for now, it's hard to imagine wanting to dive back into anything so morbid, particularly after a story like this. As a kid, I used to follow this case with an almost morbid intrigue on any number of news magazine-type shows that would cover it. I suppose because, despite mostly being a happy kid, those types of cases were part of my daily intake of curious morbidity. 
In much the same way, the tale of the Dale became one of those stories that was always embedded in my understanding of the automotive industry. The murders of Mickey and Trudy Thompson showed me the tragic undercarriage of the American dream. And yet, Mickey Thompson the man transcends Mickey Thompson the victim. Trudy Thompson the woman transcends Trudy Thompson the victim. It can be hard to walk the thin line between celebrating a person's life and reflecting on the manner in which it ended. But, at the end of the day, if you're fortunate enough to become a legend in your field, then having your life ultimately stolen away from you shouldn't diminish the things you accomplished. A legend is still a legend, even if not all legends have happy endings.